Good afternoon to many dear friends in Washington. Uh, good late afternoon or good evening to others. I know we have at least one calling in from the Middle East. Um, bravo to you. Um, this is the uh, sixth installment of our private Wilson policy brief uh, on COVID-19. Uh, where we invite experts to make sense of this pandemic. Uh, there's extremely high attendance on this call, and I may not have you all identified on this hard-to-read list in tiny type, but we have a former trustee and, co and co-chair of our investment uh, committee, uh, Ambassador Chuck Cobb. We have um, uh, Dave Petraeus is co-chair of the Global Advisory Council, Sir John Scarlett, who was fabulous briefing this group a couple weeks ago. And we have members including Ahmed Al-Sayed, Mark Fuchs, John Manley, Don McClellan, John Phelan, Parak Saxena, Ken Slater, and key supporters including Marlene Malik, uh, Frank Islam, Diana Davis-Spencer, Michael Waller, uh, Ginny Edlovich, and Ambassador John Negroponte, who in addition to the fact that he was ambassador to four countries, uh, is married to the one and only Diana Negroponte, who... Uh, uh, chairs our, our uh, Wilson Council and is a wonderful part of the uh, the Wilson family. I can think of no better strategic thinker. Now I mean this: I cannot think of a better strategic thinker to help us today uh, than General Dave Petraeus, partner at, uh, with the global investment firm KKR and chairman of its Global Institute, as well as co-chair, as I mentioned, of our Global Advisory Council. He has not only shared his wisdom with the center over many years he has chaired two of our annual galas thank you dave for everything you do for us uh he served for 37 years uh and 44 deployments i think and in major leadership assignments in the military along the way he got a phd from princeton and academic assignments both in the military and after at numerous colleges and universities, including CUNY's Honors College, USC, Harvard, Yale, Exeter, and the University of Birmingham in England. Um, following his uh, military career, he opted for a uh, simple uh, civilian assignment as Director of Central Intelligence. I served there on his advisory board, and he surprised me and moved me to tears uh, when he gave me the Director's Medal, uh, which I display proudly in my office at the Wilson Center. I think I'm going to cry again. I was really touched by that. Throughout my time in Congress, uh, prior to that, uh, Dave was my go-to general. In 2010, when President Obama asked him to become ISAF commander, uh, he willingly gave up his leadership of CENTCOM trading what was a four-star command for what had been a three-star command. I actually saw him that day on Capitol Hill and was there when he briefed House leadership. Later, I was part of a small Codell visiting Afghanistan, and he showed us the now-famous slide depicting the challenges there. It featured concentric circles for all the players, from insurgents to coalition partners, and levers of influence from popular support to the narcotics trade. He told us, that we had to get the inputs right to get the outputs right, something I have never forgotten. The same has got to be true for our ongoing response to the COVID-19 crisis, including how we reopen our country and how we address health crises, and we will have them in the future. So what are we talking about today? How does this end? It's the now famous question that Dave asked a reporter embedded with him in Mosul in, 20, in 2003, in the first 
weeks after the U.S. invaded Iraq and an insurgency began. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, that question has been on our minds ever since. It is more relevant than ever as visions of our post-COVID world, let's please have one, remain blurry. Leave it to Dave to give us some much-needed clarity. Uh, Please note, everyone, that the first portion of this conversation, the one we're having right now, will be recorded. Uh, uh, Dave Petraeus will speak for 20-plus minutes, and I will ask him some questions. That will be followed by an off-the-record segment. Uh, And if you, a listener, has a question to ask at that segment, please email norabodner at wilsoncenter.org, and she will name you and put your question to General Petraeus. And so now, enough fawning, um, but it's really delivered with great heart. Uh, Please welcome uh, General Dave Petraeus. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction, Jane. Uh, Welcome to you all. Uh, The title of this afternoon's session, Tell Me How This Ends, is, as Jane noted from a rhetorical question I began asking actually during the fight to Baghdad, as it became clear to me that the assumptions we'd been provided before the invasion were being invalidated one by one. I was the commander of the great 101st Airborne Division at the time and had as my embedded journalist Rick Atkinson of the Washington Post. I forgot that everything I said was on the record, and I thus heard that question repeatedly in subsequent years, first in the book that Rick published within a year of the invasion, then often in congressional hearings and also in press conferences. It even became the title of a book on the surge in Iraq. And I think that tell me how this ends is the key question right now when it comes to the current pandemic. So I'll begin by addressing that, but then also talk a bit about the implications of the pandemic for the recovery of the U.S. economy, for U.S.-China relations, for geopolitics more broadly, for business and consumer behavior, and for the so-called return of history. As a bottom line up front, which soldiers are often asked to provide, alternative titles for this session could have been two years to nearly normal, or it depends. Or, as Harvard professor Steve Walt, one of my dissertation advisors at Princeton 25 years ago, offered, a world less free, less prosperous, and less open. I suspect he will be proven right. So let's begin. Up front, tell me how the pandemic ends. The answer to that question is that the the threat of the COVID-19 virus ends most likely when therapeutic treatments are developed and sufficiently mass-produced to dramatically reduce the effects of the virus on those infected so that reasonably normal life can be resumed. Certainly, it would be nice to have a vaccine developed and mass-produced as well, but that is unlikely for at least 15 to 18 months at the earliest, and even that timeline would be the fastest development of a vaccine in history, which, to my understanding until now, has generally been four years. More likely in the near term, then, is the development of a therapeutic treatment and experts project that it could be developed within as little as a few months in the very best case, or a number of months longer than that uh, in the more likely case. Perhaps more importantly then is the question, how will the current restrictions under which most of us are living be relaxed so that some normal commerce and business activity can be resumed, albeit with certain safeguards such as continued wear of masks, 
when physical distancing is not possible, frequent hand washing, continuation of teleworking by those who can do that, limitations on the size of gatherings, continued sheltering in place by those most vulnerable to the virus's effects, and considerable testing, contact tracing, and selective isolation based on the testing and tracing. I think that the gradual relaxation of most of the current restrictions will be slow, tentative, and halting, akin to putting one's foot into the water to test the temperature, pulling it out if not right, making adjustments, then putting in more of one's body, adjusting further, and so forth, until fully immersed. And that is essentially what is outlined in the guidelines published last week by the White House, which laid out three sequential phases for reducing restrictions, each phase typically being triggered by 14 days of consecutive reductions in the infection rate in the state or region contemplating reductions in restrictions. To be sure, the president has at times applauded actions by states that seem to be ignoring the guidelines his administration has published. In fact, some restrictions are being relaxed in a few U.S. locations later this week, albeit without key elements of the proposed guidelines being present, and in many respects without completely compelling logic. How a nail salon or barber shop or massage parlor can maintain social distancing is beyond me. As a result, these actions risk readmission of community transmission which could force resumption of collective shelter-in-place direction once again. In the view of many experts, a view I share, the key to the success of the progressive relaxation of restrictions will be massive increases in testing, development of substantial contact tracing capacities and capabilities, and selective isolation of those who test positive or were exposed to someone who did. The numbers of tests required for the United States would need to be at least 5 million per day in the near term, which is some 15 times our current rate of testing and about the total of all tests so far, with a requirement for several times the 5 million number per day over the longer term in an ideal world, according to the experts. But even with that, there will still need to be precautions. Some continued practice of physical distancing in various ways, including in restaurants and other gathering places, restrictions on gathering sizes, and further sheltering in place by those most vulnerable, as well as, again, for those who test positive or had contact with someone carrying the virus. To sum this part up then, how the pandemic ends depends on the pace of the development, administration, uh, of therapeutic treatments and in the interim on phased careful relaxation of restrictions that allow some normal commerce to return, though by no means all, given the need for continued safeguards and supported by dramatic increases in the amount of testing for the virus and in the capacity for contact tracing when tests are positive. And of course, all of this could be undone if the virus mutates to a form no longer susceptible to the therapeutic treatment or eventual vaccine, or if the virus bounces back from other countries or is transmitted state to state in the United States or returns this winter during the flu season. With that, let me address the top 
five questions on the implications of the pandemic. First, and largely U.S.-centric, what will the shape of the economic recovery be? Here the answer, of course, is that it depends. Every former economics professor knows he can never go wrong by giving that answer. It depends in particular, as I just explained, on how quickly a therapeutic treatment can be developed and administered, and in the interim, on how quickly successful relaxation of restrictions enabled by massive testing, contact tracing, and selective isolation can be implemented. Given our sense of the possibilities of therapeutics and testing enabling enabled relaxation, my sense would be that the recovery will not be a V-shaped one in which there is a rapid return of economic activity to normal. Beyond that, I hope it will not be a W-shaped one in which overly hasty relaxations of restrictions or mutation of the virus leads to renewed community transmission and necessitates a return of collective shelter-in-place restrictions. Rather than a V or W-shaped recovery, I suspect the shape will be an elongated U or L-shaped one, in which a few industries, such as infrastructure construction, dry cleaners, perhaps indeed barbers, hair salons, consumer foods, even restaurants and theaters with, with lower density and physical separation, return at a reasonable rate, while others return more slowly, concerts, conventions, hotels, athletic leagues with spectators, etc. And as even other sectors take much longer, such as international tourism and international business travel, and most likely the cruise ship business, which may never fully recover to pre-pandemic levels. In truth, a number of industries may not fully recover to those levels for some years, given our experiences during the pandemic with Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and so forth. Many of us rightly are already asking, asking whether we need to resume our previous punishing levels of travel, and I am certainly among them. Okay, second, what about the effects of the pandemic on the most important relationship in the world, that between the U.S. and China, and one that overwhelmingly, I think, all of us hope could be one that is mutually beneficial. Here I want to acknowledge the superb presentation last week by the Wilson Center's lead China scholar, Robert Daly, who made a compelling case that the pandemic will intensify certain existing features of a relationship already under stress and introduce some new ones that altogether could take the relationship to what he termed a breaking point. As Robert explained, the frictions that stem from the pandemic, which originated in Wuhan, of course, and was not initially reported accurately by Chinese authorities when it came to issues of human transmission, will put greater pressure on already ongoing actions to deny access of certain Chinese technologies and firms, Huawei, ZTE, DGI drones, for example, to the U.S. market, thereby further fueling the already nascent technology Cold War, will add new pressures to reduce supply chains that originate in China and either bring manufacturing home or see it established in other countries. Will prompt actions in particular to reduce U.S. dependence on China for medical equipment, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, and materials required for medical testing. 
will result in greater limits on sale of U.S. dual-use technologies of value to defense industries in China, will be a catalyst for development of mutually exclusive informational arenas in which Chinese citizens' access to Western media and accurate information is further restricted, even as Chinese propaganda initiatives inflame Western governments and the U.S. puts further restrictions on Chinese social media that allegedly are censored by Chinese authorities. We'll likely see further blaming by both the U.S. and Chinese presidents of the other country as each leader presents his system as superior to the other and will undoubtedly add more fuel to Chinese efforts to develop an alternative to the swift dollar-denominated financial transaction system even as the U.S. considers requiring delisting from U.S. stock markets of Chinese firms that do not meet Western accounting standards. In some, and quite troublingly, the pandemic will likely accelerate the existing trends and introduce new developments as well and could push various decoupling actions so far that there is literally a breaking point in certain aspects of the U.S.-China relationship though I do not mean to imply that this could result in armed conflict, though it undoubtedly does create greater potential for minor conflict and miscalculation. Third, what about the broader geopolitical implications? Once again, I could answer that it depends in this case. It depends on whether prominent leaders seek to promote global rather than just national solutions to the pandemic, recognizing that in such a situation, None of us is safe unless all of us are safe. It depends on how wealthy nations help those with far less hospital capacity and little of the fiscal and monetary firepower that the U.S. and developed nations are employing to cushion the blows to economies that have gone off a cliff, with unemployment in the U.S. going from the lowest in 50 years to near depression levels. And on how multinational entities and multilateral organizations respond to the challenges associated with the pandemic, noting that some have come up short at various points in this recent history. I fear that the answer in each case will be less than most at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and its Global Advisory Council would hope to be the case. My fear is that the pandemic will, over time, increase inequality between the developed world and emerging economies, promote greater populism, stoke nationalism, reduce ease of travel across borders, perhaps even within the EU, result in diminished support for international organizations like the World Health Organization, and result in further reduction in global trade and a substantial result or a substantial increase in financial collapses in the emerging market areas. As a believer in coalitions and a believer in international organizations, I find these prospects very concerning. But I do retain hope that national leaders will emerge in the months ahead who promote global efforts to resolve what clearly are global problems, not the least of which is the horrific pandemic. Fourth, what will the effects of the pandemic be on business and consumer behavior? This is a critical subject, as it will have a great deal to do with the pace of return to pre-pandemic levels of activities in major industries, such as those connected with international tourism, the hospitality industry, sports and large entertainment venue industries, business conferences, board meetings even, 
travel by car, vice travel by plane. Restaurants, the cruise ship industry, preferences for living in urban versus suburban locations, the prospects for brick-and-mortar retail, and even the future of work. With many of us having learned that we can perform our jobs remotely, how critical will boots on the ground be in the future? Clearly, there will be important changes in consumer and business behavior as a result of this experience. And fifth and finally, what about the effects of the pandemic on the ongoing competition between different systems of government and economics? Members of the Global Advisory Council have heard me discuss the concept of the return on history, a play on the title of the classic article in 1989 by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History. In that piece, of course, Fukuyama argued that the historical competition of ideas and systems then between the U.S.-led democratically elected governments of the world with free market economic systems and the Soviet-led Communist Party government and command economy would shortly be over, with the Soviet system collapsing of its own weight. And that, of course, happened not long after Fukuyama's article was published. But as I have noted in recent years, and as Fukuyama has conceded as well, history is back. And the competition has resumed, this time between the U.S.-led democracies with free market economics, but with many of those countries experiencing a substantial rise of populism and discontent, and the Chinese meritocratic one-party system with a robust hyper-competitive state capitalism economy, albeit with state-owned enterprises of considerable scale, and observing that that system has achieved in the 41 years since Deng Xiaoping welcomed the world to China, results never equaled before in history. Here I truly will seek refuge in responding, it depends, because it does, very much so. Perhaps on the outcome of the presidential elections in the U.S. in November, as well as the outcomes of the elections to control the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. Beyond that, it depends on the success in combating the pandemic of of the efforts in South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, and several other countries that seem to have the right formula for dealing with the pandemic. And on how China does as well, not to mention whether the U.S., where there have been extraordinary responses by the Federal Reserve with interest rate reductions and unprecedented monetary easing, and also by legislation developed by Congress for the executive branch to cushion the blow of the extreme downturn. Keep in mind that in just the first three bills passed alone, the U.S. has spent double the amount of the normal discretionary funding of a fiscal year. On this question, I will not hazard guesses at the implications just yet, but I will be ready when we can gather again in person or virtually if we have to for a joint session of the Wilson Center Board, Global Advisory Council, Cabinet, Scholars, and staff, hopefully with reassuring news by then. So with that, I hope to have stimulated conversations about these topics and with my thinking on them, as well as questions about other implications of the pandemic. And I now give the floor back to our incomparable president, Jane Harmon. Thank you, Dave. Uh, No one can ever accuse you of thinking small. Uh, That was a tour de force, uh, the entire world and about 18 subjects in uh, 20 minutes. 
so I'll just drill down on a few things that you didn't cover. Imagine that, um, and and let others ask you all kinds of interesting questions. One of the things you did not cover, uh, back to your old life, was the effect of COVID-19 on military readiness, uh, not just now this minute, but our future concept of military readiness, or if you said it, I missed it. But my question is about things that are obvious, like close-quarter environments, like military bases and ships. What are we going to do about this? Uh, but also uh, calling up the National Guard to uh, help America's cities and the rest of it. How are we going to think about military readiness in a COVID and post-COVID environment? Well, even before the issues arose with the uh, spread of the virus in the aircraft carrier Teddy Roosevelt, known as the Big Stick, um, I observed that it is really difficult to achieve physical distancing uh, in a naval vessel where people bunk three high, uh, where there are very crowded spaces in submarines, uh, aircraft where it's sort of tough to distance yourself in a cockpit, uh, et cetera, et cetera, an infantry squad and so on. And lo and behold, we have seen the, the way that the virus can be transmitted in these closed spaces. Now, the military has taken a number of actions where it can uh, to reduce the potential for spread. Uh, literally, the Pentagon uh, and many of the elements there is one day on, one day off. They're reducing the numbers of people in the building. They're reducing the, how you sit near each other, a variety of different activities that one would expect. There have been cancellations of major exercises. Of course, the TR itself has been tied up at a pier uh, for a number of weeks already. Uh, and then various other activities have had to be either scaled back very considerably uh, or canceled or postponed altogether. So there is undeniably uh, a readiness price that is being paid because of the pandemic. Uh, and it will have to be made up for. Uh, after this is said and done and after they units can get back together the way they normally would and pursue the kind of training training uh, operations and exercises that are the foundation of military readiness, noting that there are, of course, forces continuing to carry out missions in tough places uh, around the world, again, trying to uh, recognize the need for some changes, but also uh, having to get on with missions that have to be performed by individuals in tight quarters. We should keep in mind that readiness is not a trivial issue. Uh, the, the saddest example of this is that we have lost far more men and women in uniform in training accidents in recent years, particularly in ship collisions, than we lost in combat in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and elsewhere. So this is not a small issue, uh, and it is, at the end of the day, the foundation of deterrence uh, is your capability, which is founded on military readiness uh, times, obviously, your willingness to use that capability. I do believe that the entire force uh, has very much gotten it right uh, when it has come to the big idea for coming to the support of uh, FEMA, uh, the Emergency Management Agency of state and 
local medical systems and first responders and so forth. And that big idea has been that these are our fellow citizens. Our job is to protect their security and safety. Uh, what is more important than protecting them in a situation like this? And so you do have uh, well over 30,000, not just National Guard activated by states, but also active duty and reserve, other reserve component uh, military that have been called up or committed to the support of this effort, including the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, including assets of U.S. Transportation Command, uh, an entire command structure uh, that is founded around six joint task forces that have been established throughout the United States uh, and that are under the command of the U.S. Army uh, uh, North uh, component commander, a three-star uh, Army Lieutenant General. I might add, by the way, a female helicopter pilot who is a battalion commander in the Great 101st during the fight to Baghdad in the first year in Iraq. Um, so I think we have very much gotten that right. That is the right approach. Um, I think we saw in a previous administration where there was hesitation to do that, and the effort was made to use just the National Guard in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and I think that all of those who look back on that, including probably the most senior policymakers at the time, realized that it would have been far better had we committed active duty forces, even though they were scheduled for deployment to Iraq, because this is about saving fellow Americans' lives uh, and ensuring their safety. Over. Uh, <laughs> oh, let me uh, agree robustly with uh, those comments about the bravery of our people in military in, in military uniform and uh, those uh, in intelligence jobs, which are not even disclosed. Uh, to their own families. I want to get to that in a moment. But one more question about this. Um, we didn't learn enough lessons from Katrina. I hope we will learn more lessons from this because listening to the public airwaves today, this and you said it too, Dave, this could be back in in the same form or a different form sooner than we know. So I wanted to make that point. But on the military point, uh, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of uh, Chicago, always used to say in the Obama administration, don't let, a, don't let a crisis go to waste. And could this crisis prompt us, just back to military re readiness, to rethink uh, some of our notions of what is military readiness, or at least what is defense readiness? Um, for example, oh, sure. I gather there's a very capable uh, new commandant of the Marine Corps who's doing this, and we're hoping he'll come and speak at the Wilson Center. Um, but are there opportunities, because you, you think big, uh, that we ought to at least put on our list to think about that could not just save lives uh, through friendly fire accidents or other problems, but, but also uh, deploy people uh, where they're needed and maybe rethink the use of some of the uh, platforms that we have funded for years and years that may be legacy platforms and not useful. Well, first of all, that thinking is very much going on. Um, I recently... Um, was asked to interview the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, for the Business Council. Our KKR's co-founder, Henry Kravis, is the vice chairman of that. It was a pleasure to do it. I've known Mark for decades. Um, and it is very, very clear that he is driving transformation of the U.S. military already uh, to put much more emphasis on the kinds of capabilities 
that are necessary for the most significant possible conflicts, which are those associated, of course, with the resurgence of great power rivalries, which are unlikely, but are unlikely in large part because we are ready for them and would-be adversaries know that. Uh, and so that is very much ongoing uh, and is going into even higher gear with Secretary Esper uh, at the helm. The Marine Corps Commandant is a great example of that. Um, but there's a narrower question here as well, and that is, do we not put national security writ large around this particular threat, given that it has now killed more than twice the number of lives of Americans lost in the 9-11 attacks, both wars in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan already, and is very likely, tragically, to uh, soon exceed the number of Americans that we lost in Vietnam uh, as well. So, I mean, this is an enormous uh, conflict. I wrote something recently that said I thought that I had been privileged to serve in the wars of, of my generation or of our lifetime, if you will, principally Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was wrong. Uh, this is the war of our lifetime. And those who are on the front lines aren't wearing military uniforms, certainly some are, well over 30,000 are, but the real individuals on this front line are those who are in our our medical system. Uh, they are the doctors and nurses and other workers that enable uh, the healthcare professionals to do their jobs. It's the other first responders who are being called on so much and who have had a heavy toll of infection uh, of the coronavirus uh, as well. So I think this actually causes us to sit back yet again and say not only should the military have more capability for this, by the way, there is a publicly known 24 support command, it's called, which is a unit that is uh, it created and equipped and trained to deal with, among others, uh, biological weapons, uh, others as well. But again, this should be a huge catalyst for resuming increases in spending for NIH, uh, CDC, and the various agencies. The Infectious uh, Disease Agency is an example that Tony Fauci uh, heads, among others, uh, and indeed in the intelligence community, uh, to focus a great deal more uh, on this. And I would just offer that there have been individuals who have identified this as an intelligence failure. I do not share that. I think that there were numerous, uh, there are numerous examples that the intelligence community and also uh, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, did raise, did sound the alarm bell about the pandemic as it was uh, identified in China uh, and did try to get the attention of policymakers um, and that it, it was more of an issue of not making decisions quickly enough uh, at that level rather than a lack of intelligence or uh, medical warnings. So that's where I was going. I have just two more questions. Get ready, everybody. Nora.bodner at WilsonCenter.org. Um, the intelligence community. It has been widely reported, reported, uh, that there is a an acting uh, head uh, of of the uh, an acting DNI director of national intelligence who is a current ambassador to Germany whose mission it is to 
quote, purge, unquote, the leadership of various parts of the intelligence community. And surely uh, the, the guy before him and before that, Senator Dan Coats, are departed. Uh, the, the, the head of the National Counterterrorism Center was surprised when he was told that he was leaving. The inspector general of the intelligence community uh, was moved out. Uh, he was the guy who reported uh, the information about the whistleblower. Uh, and my question to you as a former director of Central Intelligence is, don't we need uh, the best and brightest on the case and the morale high in our intelligence community if we are going to find the clues to deter and prevent uh, uh, potential harm against the United States? And let me just point out, I know you agree with this, uh, that the intelligence community reports on intentions and capabilities. It doesn't make policy. It speaks truth to power. Correct. And and obviously, I have to agree with that. Um, and, you know, you were the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee in addition to your time on the CIA Director's External Advisory Board and lots of other uh, opportunities to and helped write the reorganization of the intelligence community. In fact, when the DCI became the DNI and the CIA Director was just responsible for his agency and its actions and specifically for covert action directly to the White House. Um, no, look, I, I, and I have no doubt at all that an organization which is 99% professional, similar to that of the military uh, in the Department of Defense, uh, is head down doing the work that, that we cherish them for doing uh, and speaking truth to power. Um, certainly, we have plenty of examples in our history of what happens when there is what was sometimes called troop leading of intelligence analysis or nudging and nudging to try to get to uh, an intelligence conclusion that supports a preferred policy uh, direction. And that has generally not ended well. Uh, so I think the the cautions are valid, but at the end of the day, I think that these are organizations that, again, you know, the CIA, as an example, has only two individuals who are actually political appointees, if you will, and only one really is the one that, on which people focus, which is the director. They're the only two actually are confirmed by the Senate after being nominated by the president. Uh, there are obviously more of those in, in some at, at ODNI, but not a huge amount more. And by and large, it's an org these are organizations and uh, an office at, at the top of that in the DNI that are predominantly professionals, predominantly apolitical, uh, and predominantly just trying to understand reality and to convey it uh, to the policymakers. And I am confident that that will continue and that they, again, there have been too many cases where uh, we didn't get it right um, that haunt uh, the community uh, and will continue to do so and will impel and compel those who are privileged to be part of these great organizations to do the very best they can to get the right analytical conclusion and to then provide that to the policymakers. Well, I, I surely hope that's right, and I hope that our best and brightest sign up for assignments 
in the intelligence community and are not turned away from what at least seems to some people as a disparagement of, <clears throat> of the IC at a time when I would say we need it most. Last question for me is brain cells on the problem. I wrote an op-ed, and you've recently written uh, a, a piece with Vance Surchuk, a great fan of both of ours, a great friend of both of ours, and we are fans of his, on uh, Afghanistan and what might happen with the uh, purported peace deal there, given the the uh, dispute among the leadership, the COVID-19 problem, uh, and the way the peace deal was negotiated. I think there are lots of other problems. I'm sure you agree. Um, this issue of Kim Jong-un's health in North Korea, his testing of missiles, um, the, the uh, failed states uh, in many places in the, U in, in, in the uh, Middle East, like Yemen and Libya, uh, the, the uh, uh, recruiting of terrorists in the Sahel in, in southwestern uh, or, or <laughs> northern Africa, excuse me, uh, and and I could list others. Um, um, Iran, I forgot Iran. Uh, do we have, while we are coping with COVID-19, the capacity, or if we don't, how can we develop the capacity uh, to walk and chew gum at the same time to uh, fight no, the pandemic, sure. but also uh, to make no, sure we that we have do. our eye on national yes. security problems? I think you came to CENTCOM one time, leading a delegation, and I sat down, and among other items that we discussed, uh, I explained that Central Command is like the guy in the circus who gets a plate on the stick and spins it and then gets another one up and ultimately has, I don't know, a dozen or so plates on sticks, some of those plates much bigger and more important than others, and you can't let those fall. But the U.S. is that, needless to say, on steroids. Uh, the U.S. is an extraordinarily capable country and has enormous capacity uh, to perform multiple missions around the world, some of which require very high-end capabilities, and we're seeking to get more high-end as we replace the exquisite, incredibly expensive, heavily manned uh, platforms like aircraft carriers and so forth with uh, unmanned much less expensive, still incredibly capable, perhaps AI-enabled uh, platforms, uh, and, and all of these activities, but also still carrying out essentially comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaigns in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, perhaps Somalia, uh, Northwest Africa, as you said, but doing it in support of host nation forces because of the incredible capabilities that we've built in the past decade or so, particularly when it comes to the constellation of drones that we can put up that are truly transformative. I mean, it was that which enabled us with less than 6,000 troops on the ground in Iraq to enable the Iraqi army and special operations forces to defeat the Islamic State and take away its caliphate in Iraq and to enable the Syrian Democratic Forces to the west of Iraq to do the same thing in the portion of their country where you had the caliphate as well. So, yes, the U.S. absolutely has the capability to do this and this and much more, <clears throat> even as some of its assets are committed to combating the pandemic. It's all absolutely possible. 